Welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's show, we have Cruel Valentine, and I can't even express to you what a treat this episode is. There is so much information, such a vulnerability that they brought to the show that I'm just truly thankful for them to come on and speak so bravely. So today we talk about the politics of burlesque, what is sex work, reprogramming straight cis white men financial domination it just the conversation goes to so many aspects that i couldn't have even known of this multi-dimensional person and i think y'all are really gonna love this so just tune in another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, welcome to Modern Anarchy. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Uh, I know you have a lot of different titles for your job. Yes. You're a very multidimensional human. Um, what? How would you describe yourself? Oh my gosh. So how long do we have? Yeah. I mean, you know, take all the space you need. Um, so to narrow it down, it usually, I usually boil it down to a short sentence, which is that I am a burlesque entertainer, sex worker, performing artist, uh, creative business consultant, and diversity and inclusion specialist. Wow. <laughs> you are the perfect person for the show. I actually, I don't even know where to start. Which one speaks to you the most that you'd love to talk about? You know, they're all so entangled. It's kind of hard to distinguish them from one another because they cross over so much. Mm. Um, just in the way that I live my life, um, I do everything under a singular umbrella brand. And so it's all connected. So it's not like compartmentalized. Mm. Okay. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, well, I started my my brand, Cruel Valentine. I started my company in 2007, mm-hmm. and I started as a burlesque performer. Um, and then it sort of grew as I met people and networked within the performance industry. And eventually, I branched off into sex work, too. Um, burlesque has always been kind of at the heart of what I do. I, I hold a musical theater bachelor's from Columbia College, mm-hmm. Chicago, um, being on stage is what I, what I live for. Um, and that's kind of how I got my, my start with everything, but anything can be a stage. Mm. (laughs) Um, as they say, all the world's a stage and yeah, I've found ways to embody that love for the performing arts in different sorts of circumstances. And, um, from anything from speaking at conferences Mm. to dominating someone (laughs) to, you know, any sort of thing. Um, so yeah, they all kind of cross over and interact with each other. And I find that, um, each part of what I do informs the next part in multiple ways, especially since I work, I live and I work at the intersection of so many marginalized identities. Mm -hmm. 
which I really love. Of wow, I don't even know where to start. These are too many good things. I'm just like, yes, yes, yes. Um, okay, well then let's start from the very beginning. Obviously, no one just pops up doing burlesque. How did you get started? Where did all of this come from? So my freshman year of college, I was I studied musical theater, as I said, and part of our program, um, the requirements, at least at the time, required um, a full year of musical theater history. Mm -hmm. And a large chunk of that is sort of dedicated to how the history of burlesque and cabaret and even synchronized swimming shows and diving shows and even minstrel shows um, and all sorts of different types of performance art, Mm -hmm. good and bad, um, sort of informed our modern practice of the standard um, two-act musical theater production that we we kind of know today. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a little bit about burlesque and I found it really fascinating and I got really excited about it and was like, okay, what do I do with this excitement? Hmm. <laughs> I had never seen a show in real life or anything. Um, I'd only seen, you know, clips and examples from my own research and things we had watched in school. But then I heard about a show that was happening basically when I was getting back from my winter break between the two semesters and I ended up getting tickets to this show. And it was actually my first, my first date with my partner okay, who I'm with today awesome. as well. Um, so it was like the beginning of a lot of things for me, but I, I went to that show and it was just life-changing. I saw so many different, it was, you know, if, if I had one opportunity to see my first show, like I'm so glad it was that one because it was a super diverse cast. It was extremely queer and it featured headliners from all over the place. A lot of people who were legends and major title holders. Um, And in burlesque, when I say legend, that means someone who has been performing a very long time. So Mm -hmm. we have legends who have are performing who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s -hmm. today um, and so forth. So lots of older performers, people who had been around in the industry through different ups and downs of, of the industry and different different approaches to the work. So it, it was very cool to see so many different interpretations. Uh, the show was also very political and mm-hmm. it was very in your face. It was no holds barred. It was not, it was not ironed out or, <laughs> or sort of like um, refined for any, any particular palette. It was just mm-hmm. very, very in your face and very bold. And I was like, that's what I need to be doing. And then a few months later, I heard about an audition and I went out for it and I started working with a troupe for a while. Um, I was originally cast as an understudy and then I did a show as a feature with them or a couple shows where I was a feature with them. And then I broke out as a soloist on my own mm. about a year after that. So, wow. yeah, I just That's dove right in. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So that first time you're sitting there in that show, you're just vibing with all of it. Oh my gosh. Like, I was like, why was I not born in this room? Like, I was like, this is everything I'm about. Okay, that's amazing because that was not my (laughs) first experience. Obviously, I come from a – well, my background is Christianity, right? So my first time I went to a burlesque show, I was just completely overwhelmed by the amount of sexuality I was seeing. So, you know, what was your background then before that moment? Because you're very comfortable clearly in that space. And so – what was your messaging that kind of allowed you to even feel comfortable just going to a show like that? I mean, I've always been around the performing arts and I've always been a very like queer and yes. sexual and sex positive yes. person. And so I, it was just a really good fit. It wasn't, there. I wasn't hesitant about it or anything. Wow. I walked in and I was like, oh, I'm home. 
it was very weird. It was like going home, at, but you've never been home before. Yes. It was very, it was, it was just life-changing. It wow. changed everything for me. It just all clicked for you right there. Yeah, 100%. Amazing. And so then you start doing the performance and then teaching, you said, after a year? Um, well, or- I broke out as a soloist after a year. And I, I probably started teaching in like, I want to say 20, 2010. Okay. And so you do you still teach now? I do. Yes. Wow. Okay. So you're very into the community in Chicago, I'm sure, and the whole burlesque scene that is here. I am, but I actually, I primarily tour, obviously not okay. in the current circumstances, but I, I perform on the road more more than I do locally. Mm-hmm. So it's always nice to perform at home, but I, I travel a lot under normal circumstances. Neat. So what is burlesque for you? I feel like a lot of different dancers might have different intentions of going into burlesque and what their sort of performance is like. Do you feel like you have a definition or, you know, mission behind what you do? Um, Well, burlesque, as it was sort of created, was this art form that was basically designed to to lampoon and criticize and satirize the status quo and the ruling class. Um, But it has taken many forms over the years and it's sort of expanded and it's become this really this really interesting vehicle for people to say a lot of different things. And a lot of times people will sort of focus it around sexual empowerment or people will focus it around identity, around Mm -hmm. queerness or perhaps like their heritage and ethnic or racial um, identity or, you know, a cause, a political movement or something like that. So it does kind of vary quite a bit, but that is kind of the core definition, Mm -hmm. what I said before about it being, you know, something to sort of call attention to and point out, you know, areas of hypocrisy or things that are sort of wrong with the way we as a a society function. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of it is just through the art of exaggeration and sort of doing these things that are beautiful and maybe even seen as as high class or classy Mm -hmm. um, and doing them to a point where it's almost just overkill. It's like grotesque to a point. Um, And a lot of those original acts where they were super sensual and done in this very like supposedly classy way with these you know, decadent, bejeweled outfits and whatnot, a lot of that was sort of taking this idea of like, oh, what is the the ideal, what is the ideal, like, high class, beautiful woman who is, Mm -hmm. you know, performing her role in society, and sort of taking it and turning turning that concept on its end by, you know, stripping down and bumping and grinding and doing all of these things that were, you know, seen as, you know, sort of heinous and shocking. Mm hmm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that that history of it. Uh, I think that's so important to kind of understand where it started from and what the purpose is of the act and the performance. So for you, I'm sure you've expressed a lot of different messages in your work. Is there one that you're specifically proud of that you, you know, know fondly that you'd want to share? Ooh, gosh, there are so many. I know. It's, <laughs> it's difficult to narrow it down. Um because I mean, I've I've been doing burlesque since 2007, so it'll be um, in May. It'll be my 14 year burlesque anniversary. Wow! wow. <laughs> um, I have a lot of acts that are sort of like what some might might refer to as a signature act or something that I'm kind of like known for or people associate with me. And there are a few key ones that I like to talk about. One of them is an act that I did for a show that was about people's like national heritage. And so part of my family is from Sweden and I decided to do an act that was a tribute to Ikea, um, which was, you know, 
not what people expect when they hear that a Black performer is coming to the stage mm-hmm. to do a show about their heritage. So it was just sort of poking fun at, at that um, part mm-hmm. of my identity and, you know, doing something playful and fun. And also Swedish meatballs are the bomb. So yes, yes. <laughs> um, so that's like kind of a weird one. Um, the act is I'm entirely clothed in an outfit I made out of Ikea bags. I love it. I imagined a a Swedish meatball for the costume for a brief moment, which I think could equally be amazing. I feel like I would look like the dude from um, Aqua Teen Hunger Force. (laughs) Oh, yes. Just like the big meat round. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We can make it sexy. Mm, Maybe I'll I'll update the costume. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's like, it's just super silly and playful. And I sort of go through an instruction manual as I'm disrobing and use those as sort of the the guide for what I'm doing. (laughs) So that's that's one that's kind of fun and just playful. One that carries a bit more of a punch and has more of a critical eye is um, my act to Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Mm -hmm. Simone. Um, It's a singing act. So it's it's an homage to her her performance at Carnegie Hall in, I want to say, 1963 or four. And mm-hmm. I'd strip out of a simple gown and chains and I unshackle myself on stage. And so that one is one that carries a lot of deep emotional meaning for me. And yeah. I mean, it's it's a very, I don't want to say difficult act to perform, but it's it has so much weight to it just emotionally. And especially these past several years as I've done it more and more, the the current context makes it you know it's very it's it's draining in a way to to perform it um and I think it's important to perform it but it's also you know something that I kind of have to take time to recover from after I do because Mm. it's just that intense for me yeah could you tell me more about what that means to you I'd love to hear um well it's a song about um black liberation and civil rights and sort of the shortcomings of society and the act of oppression of Black people, and it's about segregation and a lot of different race relations issues, and it explores the the murder of black people. Mm. And as we look around, you know, even in the past week, two weeks, like how many black people have died at the hands of police? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very, very deeply personal, but also very mm. universal topic to address and so it's something Mm. that I I have a responsibility to take care of myself as a black person as I'm performing that but I also feel you know that I have a a responsibility to anyone else whose identity is represented by that song to do it justice and to perform it in a way Mm. that is constructive and hopefully helps us toward something better to make sure that it's something that's liberating and not traumatizing or something that you know further compounds the the pain that we're all enduring because that is a lot so is there somewhere that if someone's listening to this podcast and wanted to see that that it's posted or that I could share I think that one is linked on my website under video if it's not I can put it on um after we talk and so by the time this is live it'll be there Yes, yes. I would love to link people to your website. Go watch, spread yeah, it. It's just cruelvalentine.com. Yes. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you also talked about burlesque and queerness. I'd love to hear the connection to that for you as well. 
Well, I mean, a lot of people look at burlesque and they they see, you know, people who are perceived as women, which is not how I identify. Um, I'm non-binary, but people who are perceived as women. Um, so they see women stripping for men is what they see. And that there's this sort of assumption that the work we do is tailored toward the male gaze. But we honestly have such like a, a queer and female presence in our in our shows. So it's lots of queer folks, lots of female, non-binary folks, trans folks of all stripes. Um, so it's not as many straight cis men as people tend to think. Um, and a lot of times if they are there, they're there with a partner who is not a straight cis white man. <laughs> Very interesting. And I mean, I think exploiting the male gaze for profit and to, to help people like liberate themselves and be able to take care of themselves like I don't I have no problem with that I do it all the time but yes. when I do burlesque yes. it is it's not so much that um it's not the same as the mm. sex work I do it's a little different so I'm I'm out here doing it for the queers <laughs> including for myself yes. um yeah I mean most of the people that I performed with early on like even were were queer and our our shows were very queer centric it was never like oh like walk to the end of the stage and make, make sure you find a gentleman to bat your eyes at or something like that. It was mm. just like, yeah, just go out there and give them hell and do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> yes. And how empowering is that to go and own that stage out there? I love it. I think everyone should should try something like that in their life. It doesn't have to necessarily be burlesque, but just a chance to to perform in whatever way speaks to you and to just take up space. Mm. Okay, so for someone who is hearing all that you're talking about with burlesque and really wants to get involved but is a little bit nervous or maybe doesn't know how to get into it, what would you say for someone who's thinking about hopping into this space? Go to shows. If you haven't been to shows or if you haven't been to many shows, just go to shows, hang out, observe, see what you like about burlesque, what appeals about it to you or what appeals to you about it, I should say. Mm -hmm. And you know, explore it, do some research. You don't have to jump into anything. It's not really the kind of thing where you can just get up and take your clothes off randomly somewhere. You, you know, there are channels, you know, people, a lot of people start by taking lessons um, or at the very least you'll have to like develop a body of work and submit, you know, videos or do an audition for someone. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, you can dip your toe in and then stick the rest of your foot in and then your leg, mm -hmm. you know, it's not something that is necessarily done all at once, especially um, as the community is a little more established and more fleshed out than it was when I was starting in in the olden days. Um, there was a little less structure and people would just be like, hey, I'm doing a show like next week. Are you in? Like, sure. <laughs> uh, Why not? <laughs> and so, I mean, I have mixed feelings, I guess, about sort of the evolution of of burlesque in Chicago and in other major markets across the U.S. especially uh, because, you know, the more structured something becomes, that means that there's, you know, hopefully like there are standards of behavior and etiquette and best practices and things like that. But it can also mean that, you know, there are systems put into place that, you know, present barriers to access, mm -hmm. um, especially for marginalized people, um, people who can't necessarily afford to, you know, take, 12 weeks of classes at a studio um, just to mm -hmm. get a chance to be on stage for a show they're not getting paid for, um, yes. things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think personally, I think if you're able to train privately with someone, that's a really great way to get into it, um, especially if you're someone who's exceptionally like nervous or or anxious about trying, 
you know, being, being able to work one-on-one with someone. I mean, that's one of my favorite things to do mm-hmm. um, is that's why I teach primarily private lessons. I do public workshops occasionally, but I really like working on the more develop, developmental end and being able to help someone, you know, find whatever it is about burlesque that appeals to them and makes their heart sing and sort of, you know, zone in on that and help them, you know, set goals and work toward them, whether it's to perform professionally or if it's like, oh, I just want to do a dance for my intimate partner or mm-hmm. I just want to do a, a little choreography for myself or I just want a fun burlesque themed workout. Um, so I just want to like learn some dance moves, like whatever it is. It's nice to be able to sort of tailor to what people need instead of presenting, you know, sort of a standardized curriculum and hoping that, you know, the 20 people in the room are all on board. Certainly, certainly. So for someone who maybe can't afford classes, where would you recommend? Where would you send them? There are lots of shows that are presented with no cover in Chicago. Um, I do, I don't say free because there's no such thing as free labor. (laughs) Um, Any show that you Mm -hmm. see that is is marketed as a free show is actually sponsored by the the venue or by another entity that is presenting it. So nothing is free. So even if something is free, if you get the chance to consume that free entertainment, free to you, um, know that it should be valued. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, look up free shows in, in and around Chicago or wherever you happen to be. And, you know, just see as much as you can and, you know, hang out and talk to people. Most most performers, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, don't like dominate anyone's time. It's hard to like, you know, catch your breath once you're, you're off stage and people want to unwind a little. But, you know, there's no harm in saying hi and introducing yourself and, you know, expressing your admiration for what someone has. And you never know who you'll meet. Um, mm-hmm. You might, you know, make a friend or a contact that could be really helpful to you down the road. But it's it's totally possible to develop this by yourself. I've trained as a dancer in my past since I was maybe eight, seven. So I have a lot of dance background and performance background, various things on stage. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't take burlesque lessons. I mm-hmm. I showed up to an audition and it worked out. So if you work really hard and, wow. you, you know, give people what they're asking for when they're saying, you know, submit these materials or record this or show up with this in hand and you do a good job, I mean, yeah, you can get cast. You don't have to get a degree in burlesque <laughs> to perform in right, burlesque. Because right. um, there's not really such a thing as a, a degree in burlesque unless you do a custom program for yourself. Like I know several people have done. I know what? that there's at least one doctor of what? burlesque that exists in the world. Um, but it was a, a self-made program at their school. So like an independently developed and curated program that. that they designed for themselves. They are the one and only doctor burlesque. That's amazing. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, at least. Wow. That's really neat. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, watching videos online is really helpful. Um, there are a lot of them out there. And, mm-hmm. you know, follow follow entertainers that you admire on social media. And a lot of us, you know, we'll, we'll post things about, you know, of course, shows we have coming up or like clips and videos and, you know, about you know, not just our acts as we perform them on stage, but sometimes rehearsal videos or other aspects of our process. Mm. So there's a lot that you can sort of learn and absorb that way as well. Instructors, myself included, do offer sliding scale and payment plans selectively. So if you reach out to to anyone who ad- openly advertises that they do that, you know, you can try to work something out with them. 
Those are some great resources. Thank you for plugging all of those. I think that would be helpful for anyone who's listening who's wondering, yeah, how can I get in this if I maybe can't afford it? So it's really great. And I know you said sex work. I know anyone who's listening to this podcast is going to want to know, what does that mean? What do you do? Like, Could you tell me more about that as well? Well, sex work is an umbrella term that sort of encompasses any sort of um, labor that is designed to generate uh, an excited sexual response of some sort. doesn't necessarily mean that it's a a sex act with someone where you're physically touching someone. It can also be, though that is absolutely a valid type of sex work, but a lot of people think it is just that. Mm. Um, So a lot of people think it is, you know, what would be called full service sex work. Mm -hmm. Um, But sex work can be anything from that to stripping in a club to doing uh, working as a phone sex operator to doing work on cam online, text-based sex chat, you know, domination and mm-hmm. national domination or submission and a whole variety of things. Um, there's not just one type of sex work. Yes. A lot of people um, sort of oversimplify it. So it's definitely a range. And most people who are in sex work do more than one mm. aspect of sex work. Some people sort of zone in and like focus on one type of sex work, but it's at least in my experience and the people that I, I know and work with and have met in my life um, in my career, it's pretty typical that people do more than one form. Um, if not at once, then perhaps they have past experience in one and now do another or, you know, something of that nature. So it's kind of a, a big old term that is mm-hmm. simplified a lot of the time. No, that's really good. Thank you for plugging that. So mm-hmm. what does your sex work look like? If you're willing to share, of course, this is sure. all your space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I work as a professional dominatrix okay. and I focus on reparation driven um, financial domination. That's sort of my primary area of focus, but I also in- incorporate lots of different areas of kink and BDSM under that sort of overall like the overarching mission okay tell me more what that what that means so i i reclaim the money that men and largely white men owe me and people like me for everything look around wow. the world wow. look to your left look to your right look yes. up and down all yes. of that <laughs> um we are all owed for that for the generational trauma for everything that's going on right the fuck now, even like, yeah. So I, I reclaim my, my energy and my money that is owed to me for the labor of my ancestors and the labor of myself. Hell yes. That is amazing. (laughs) Yes. Okay. If you're willing to share more, what does that look like Um, in action? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I want to know, you know, like this is fascinating. It takes a lot of forms, um, but a a lot of what I do is the consensual bullying, humiliating, retraining and reprogramming of straight cis white men to make them into better citizens of the world um, and help them to be better allies to people like me. So it's not just a simple transaction for me and for what I do. And there's nothing wrong with a simple transaction, but I just like to overcomplicate things. So um, I I add these layers of social justice work. So I will make my clients or my submissives 
write papers, do research what? and write papers on social justice, um, wow. women's issues and things like that. Or I will, you know, give them charities that they are required to donate a certain amount to every so often, one one at a time or sometimes on a recurring basis, depending on the situation. Um, so I'm basically just trying to make them less shitty. Wow. Because I feel like that responsibility is sort of thrust on people like me in general. Um, it's sort of expected of us, you know, in in any workplace. Right. You know, if I'm working in an office with someone, I'm supposed to keep a level head when they do shitty things and explain why it's wrong or explain like why I'd prefer if they didn't refer to me mm. as that or, you know, what have you. So these things are, you know, I'm it's stuff that I'm expected to do anyway that I refuse to do for free anymore. Yes. Wow. Okay. I'm very interested. So what person that needs to learn all of this is willing to pay for this? I feel like the people who really need to learn this shit don't want to come <laughs> to learn, you know? Like, what sort of person are you talking to? Well, you can't get them all, that's for I sure. Know, but I want, uh... <laughs> But at least people who are for lack of a better word, salvageable oh, yeah. people who have an interest in in growth. And, you know, a lot of times people who might think like, oh, I'm a good ally. Mm. And I will very quickly and devastatingly explain to them why they're not, but I will help them get better. Mm. And so this is not like a training program where it's like, oh, pay me and I'll like help shape you into this in eight weeks. It's more of it's less transactional for me when I do this type of work. Um, and I do I do other types of sex work too. And that is, you know, more transactional. Sure. But for my financial domination, since it, since it is focused around reparations, there's a lot more of sort of this constant give and take. Mm -hmm. um, in financial domination, the object of the fetish itself is money. Mm -hmm. So it's different than being paid for a service, at least the way that I do it. Um, other people might disagree. And there's definitely overlap from you know, between pro-domination and financial domination, they are mm -hmm. not always the same thing, but they can be and they often are. So when I do financial domination, it's a lot more deeply personal to me. It, well, I, I also have, that is a fetish of mine. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that I'm putting on airs for. It is something that I, I do enjoy that sort of um, dynamic, mm -hmm. but it's also you know, some, it's a good vehicle that I've been able to help people improve themselves, mm -hmm. um, but not just for the benefit of themselves, improve themselves in a way that is beneficial to the world around them and yes. makes them more aware of what's going on and makes them active participants in social change instead wow. of bystanders saying like, oh, well, it's, it sucks that's happening. I wish I could do something. Yeah, And a lot of times, you know, doing something people are like oh well should I lead a march or should I do this or should I do that and people want to to take leadership roles to sort of be allies or you know contribute to these causes um, when actually that's just ends up manifesting as them taking more space up mm. and so a lot of times really putting your money where your mouth is mm. and I will say like I have a fetish for money, but I hate capitalism. Mm. Um, so my fetish for money is really more about power than anything. Taking away resources from people who have too many of them yes. and, you know, giving them to myself because I deserve resources, obviously, but also redistributing them to other people who need them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people who need them more. So either getting money from submissives and then redistributing it um, or directing um, submissives 
you know, straight to different causes, different fundraisers, mutual aid funds, et cetera, that need assistance and, you know, having them report back to me and show evidence that they have done that work. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I believe you use the word fetish, right? To describe this? Yes. Okay. So how did you discover this fetish? I think this is very unique. Like, how did you find out that this works for you? Um, I will, I will clarify just in case it wasn't clear the way I presented it, but um, my fetish is for financial domination. Um, the reparations aspect is more of my passion for social justice intersecting with that. Okay. Um, so it's those two things coming together. Yes. Um, I, I don't believe in race play mm-hmm. because the fact of the matter is that if, if I say that I'm participating in race play um, with someone who has more racial privilege than me, it's not really play for me because I can't escape it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that I can like come and go from when I wish, you know, and for white people, it is white people don't have to think about race if they don't want to. Um, And I refuse to give them the benefit of them getting to experience it as something that is play. Um, It's just not. Um, And even though there is, you know, a racial dynamic in a lot of what I do, it is because there's a racial dynamic in the way that I move through the world in general. Mm. It's not because it's something that I fetishize. Definitely. So that's something I won't put up with. So if anybody listening was like, oh, I'm going to dial that person up and get some race play. You're sorely mistaken. Absolutely not (laughs) happening here. I don't know who would be listening to this who would think that way. But just in case, (laughs) you never know on the internet. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who grew up without a lot of access to resources. And I've dealt with food insecurity and housing insecurity. um, And I've had like a lot of financial challenges and other hurdles that I've had to get over and I've experienced a lot of trauma Mm. and I I grew up in an abusive household I was emotionally abused by my mother Mm. um for my entire upbringing and so a lot of the coping mechanisms and you know sort of trauma-informed responses that I developed to survive were actually like really unhealthy Mm. coping mechanisms that you know caused me to put even more undue stress on myself to accommodate other people and to to sacrifice mm-hmm. um, my own happiness and comfort and safety mm-hmm. for the benefit of others. And so a part of my healing journey from all of that has been, you know, actually standing up and yes. saying, you know, I deserve things. It's really sad and weird that I didn't think I deserved things or I acted like I didn't deserve things mm-hmm. um, for so long. But, you know, now that I'm away from that, environment you know years and years and years later it's nice to be able to say like oh yes you should give me something because I'm good at what I do or because I'm a person who you look up to because of these reasons or what have you so for me it's been kind of a part of of that healing um and just reclaiming a lot of the time that I lost um you know bending over backwards to accommodate other people and you know letting people get away with saying things to me or in front of me or, you know, enacting behaviors near me that were not okay, that I didn't have the the bandwidth or the energy or the control of the situation to address at the time. Um, And so taking that power back and taking, you know, those resources and those, you know, that, that access, that, that financial access and social capital sort of like taking taking that back because it is something that is is owed to me and people like me yeah thank you for sharing that I, I could feel the emotion as you were speaking it 
And I really appreciate you sharing that. And let's just take a moment to acknowledge where you're at. This is badass. (laughs) All of that that you just said and now you're here running this business that you've created and creating this space and inviting new people. Like I just want to take a moment to honor that. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) For someone who's listening and resonating with a lot of what you're saying, that's a journey. How do we invite other people into that space of ownership, taking up space, finding this, you know, I don't even know what the words are for it, but discovering you in everything that you are, how would you, that's a big question. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, How do, <laughs> how do you find yourself? Yeah, Step I mean, one. <laughs> like that's kind of the show, right? Is like, I want to bring on all these different people who have found whatever that is for them and, you know, and give them space to invite other people to find that too and learn from their journeys and anything that they can impart of wisdom is so valuable. I think getting to know yourself and asking yourself lots of questions, taking stock of what you're feeling in any given moment, um, what's going through your head and really respecting and honoring those parts of you, even the ones that are challenging Mm -hmm. is what I would, you know, sort of (laughs) designate as the first step Um, because you can't reclaim what is owed to you if you don't know what's owed to you. So really, you know, taking account of your history and where you're at right now and, you know, sort of assessing what you want and what you need to survive and not just survive, but also to thrive Mm -hmm. and sort of starting there and then exploring ways to get that. And it doesn't have to be through King. It doesn't have to be through BDSM. It doesn't have to be through burlesque or performance art or anything specific. It has to be whatever it is that speaks to you and makes your heart sing. That's that's all that it is, really. And I mean, that's that's a broad simplification of it. (laughs) But yeah, it's really important that you get to know yourself. And that can be something that, you know, that's an ongoing journey. That's not something where it's like, oh, well, I'll just like lock myself in my house for a week (laughs) and just like hang out with myself and have some tea and do some self-care and take a bubble bath. And then I'll be totally like right as rain and ready to do the next thing. You know, it's it's ongoing therapy. Highly recommend um, that therapy is another thing that comes yeah. in many forms. So if you are in into like therapy in like the Western sense, that's great. If you're into other forms of therapy, that's great, too. Um, like I, I see a therapist like for hourly sessions and that's, you know, something that works for me. Mm-hmm. I'm also on antidepressants. What, what? That is super helpful. Yes, can we talk <laughs> about that? Well, Butrin is my other relationship that I'm in. Um, Yeah, that is like so important. But yeah, whatever it is that like makes you feel balanced and feel cared for and safe um, or as safe as it is possible to be in this world, you know, as safe as you can control in your own little corner of the world, Mm -hmm. um, follow that, follow that thread and it will lead you to other things. Yeah. And discovering that thread, I think, is the hardest part. There's so many societal messages that are like, here's the thread over here. Here's the thread over here. Like, which one do I want? But, you know, it's just so hard to start turning that, you know, work inward of what do I want? What brings me pleasure? Uh, So, yeah, I think at first it's really difficult to do that work. But the more that you do it, the more that it, you start to feel all of your different fibers inside your body and you just start to feel it. And it and it's so beautiful. 
Okay, I'm, I think I'm overwhelmed by all of this. Let me see. Where do I want to go next in this conversation? Take a um, deep breath. <laughs> I know, no, I know. I, I just get so overwhelmed, but there's so many there's so many topics on the show that I want to talk about and it's and it's hard when I have amazing people on the show who can talk about all of them because then I get a little overwhelmed I'm like I, I want to talk about your antidepressants I want to talk about your your gender identity I want to talk about this I want to talk about that it's like god I gotta slow down you know it's like one <laughs> social cause at a time um but I, I really do appreciate your outspokenness about Wellbutrin and if you're willing to talk about that too I think that that is an area that a lot of people are very hesitant to talk about especially with the ownership that you just you know shouted and shook your hands and all of it uh well firstly i'm i'm not sponsored by Wellbutrin, <laughs> just for the record yes <laughs> <laughs> um you know antidepressants are a thing like any medication i mean not every medication works for every person so i i'm definitely not advocating for that drug specifically that is just the one that happens to work for me mm -hmm. um so please don't take this as medical advice That's anyone insane. no one should take advice from the show ever <laughs> right like anything <laughs> medical legal absolutely not <laughs> honestly like they shouldn't take medical advice from like pharmaceutical ads on television or nope. at train stops or whatever either but you know it's yeah the world in <laughs> <Right>. which we live <laughs> right um yeah i mean that is something that like i I first took antidepressants in, I think when I was in eighth grade or so, mm. I had a horrible time on them. I felt terrible and it made me extremely suicidal. And this was like kind of around the time where they were like first starting to go like, oh, sometimes antidepressants actually make you more depressed. Mm. That's so wacky. And a lot of people were like, you know, being hospitalized and dying because of this. And they were, you know, pretty slow to catch on to that trend which is like so bizarre and sad so i stopped taking my meds cold turkey which is not something i necessarily recommend in general um right. but i i unfortunately was in a situation where i was you know under the supervision of parents and physicians who did not listen to me um and so i didn't really have a, a better choice than to do that because i knew that the changes i had seen in myself and how i was feeling um, the timeline was directly like correlated with the timeline that I didn't take those those meds and it was getting worse. And I was like, you know, I I am not going to let this shitty little pill be the end of me. That's terrible. So, no. Um, and yeah, I ended up having like defy medical advice from wow. from my doctors and my psychiatrist and my my family. So, yeah, not the ideal situation, but to adults listening, you might be able to have um, hopefully more of a choice and in the matter. And like, you know, hopefully if you're not getting the the care that you feel you need or you don't feel respected or, or heard by your medical professionals, like try your best to find other people until you do. I know that, you know, access is an issue with that sort of healthcare, And, you know, if you especially like if you're on like a government plan or something and it's like you can only see certain people so i know that that's not always super easy um right but you know remember that also like primary care physicians can make those prescriptions as well um so really explore your options and and try to to find a team that will advocate for you but part of that is you you know having to advocate for yourself you know, know that if you are started on a medication, that it might not necessarily be a good fit and you need to pay attention to how you're feeling, 
um, how you're responding to the whole world around you and, you know, what's going through your head on a daily basis. And, you know, there is an adjustment period for a lot of the meds, but some of them are just not a good fit for your body chemistry. Um, That was me with SSRIs. Like I took Mm. Zoloft was the one I took most recently um, because I was off meds for many years because I was like uninsured and poor. (laughs) Um, Mm. And then I was like, hey, I really need to think about getting back on meds. So I talked to my doctor and my therapist and yeah, I took uh, Zoloft and it was a really bad time. It was a really fucking bad time. I, so much of my life revolves around like my sexual identity and Mm. I could not fuck. Like I felt nauseous and like, if this is like neutral and this is horny, I was like here, like I was like, I don't know, like anti, crazy anti horny to a point where it was like extremely depressing and like startling for me because I didn't feel like myself. Mm. And sex is not the most important thing for in my life. And I can go without sex. It's not something that I need to survive. But the fact that I was suddenly so repulsed by something that meant so much to me was like, hold on, <laughs> this is a red flag. This is not working. Mm. I also just felt nauseous. So I was on it for about a month. Uh, My doctor told me to give it about a month, I think. And I was just nauseous 24-7. And I never never threw up, which is the weird part. It was almost like worse because there was no end to it, you know? It was not like, oh, there's some relief on the other side. It was just like I felt like I was about to puke just all the time. Mm. So I couldn't eat and I was just like, I was extremely depressed and I felt suicidal again. And that was Mm. the opposite of the intent. So, um, yeah, I was like, I need to stop taking these meds. So we need to, we need to readdress this. So let's get back to the drawing board. Um, cause I, I can't live like this and I, I, I won't live long like this if I have to keep doing this. Um, so then I got put on Wellbutrin after I phased out the Zoloft. Um, I phased in Wellbutrin a little bit later. I took like a little bit of a break to like give my body some time to like reorient. But yeah, it's been such a life-changing thing for me. Like I'm like, Mm. I feel, you know, I, I feel everything. I don't feel like deliriously happy. (laughs) Um, I feel, I feel everything, but it feels manageable. Mm. Um, So I'm, I'm aware that I'm depressed and I have symptoms of depression, but they don't, they don't trample me in the same way that they used to. And I don't feel nauseous and I can fuck. So yeah, that's like ideal scenario. Um, But it's also nice to know that if for any reason it stops working or it's not enough or it's too much at some point, I can, you know, feel confident going back to my doctor and saying like, hey, we need to readdress this. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of it is, you know, having that confidence to speak up for yourself. And if you don't have that confidence to speak up for yourself, try to, you know, if you have a next, like next of kin, a loved one who can, who you can like authorize to, you know, advocate on your behalf, that is a great thing to do. But also, you know, fake it till you make it. If you don't feel confident, if you know you need the thing, do what you can to get the thing and then, you know, freak out about it afterward. (laughs) Um, You might not feel 100% amazing about having to do it. It might make you nervous or uncomfortable. Um, And a lot of that, you know, has to do with, you know, being depressed or having anxiety, etc. But yeah, I mean, 
you just, you have to love yourself enough to choose yourself. I have depression and I have anxiety. Um, I also am, I have a Xanax prescription, but I hate taking it. So I've taken it maybe like three or four times in my life. Um, mm-hmm. cause it makes me feel like I'm dead and having an out of body experience, which is not super tight. <laughs> um, no, 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 I don't no, no, love no. it. Yeah, we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've only taken it when my anxiety got to like, an extreme that I could not bear. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, but Wellbutrin has been really helpful for my anxiety and my depression and my PTSD. And mm-hmm. I feel like a person, which was not the case for a lot of my life. So it's been, mm-hmm. it's been not just healing, but also really liberating. Um, I feel whole. I love that you talked about Zoloft too, because that's what I take. And what a perfect way to talk about this of how I thrive on Zoloft. Yes. It's great for me. I'm doing awesome. I can still have sex and it's all great, but Yay. not great experience for you. So for anyone listening, it's such different body chemistries. You know, you've got to find the one that works for you and everyone's going to be different. So your friend might say this one works for me. And like, if it doesn't work for you that's okay. Mm -hmm. There's another one out there or, you know, you'll figure it out. Just don't settle on that first one. And I love that you mentioned talking about it. I think that's such a big piece is when you feel nauseous all day, tell your doctor. Mm -hmm. That's not normal. You shouldn't feel that way, right? I mean, it's hard until you start to figure it out and then you learn that you can take one of these drugs and feel normal and feel like yourself again and realize that wow all that other stuff I was feeling was not what I was supposed to be feeling but that process of learning that is hard and if you don't have a friend next to you or someone else who's done it to be like hey that's not normal you shouldn't feel like you're on drugs you shouldn't feel like you're nauseous you know so I really appreciate the openness with which you bring this topic up and especially when you're dealing with something chronic you know something long term you get accustomed to things you can get accustomed to anything yeah um, yeah. physical pain, mental, emotional pain, you know, you name it, you can get acclimated to anything. It doesn't mean that it's okay. Um, Certainly. and that was, you know, that was my experience with like a lot of the ongoing trauma that I experienced. I'm like, well, this is the way it is. So that's just exactly that. And so here I am. No, it was not acceptable just because it was happening and didn't and wouldn't stop. That doesn't make it acceptable. So yeah, if you are in a situation where you you have the power to control some of those those variables that are impacting you, absolutely do it. I'll do it. If you want, I will go to a doctor's appointment with you and yell at your doctor if your doctor is being a douchebag and saying like, oh no, like, you know, I got a bunch of free pens from, you know, X drug. So this one's the one that you need. Well, it makes me feel terrible. Well, no, just try it for, no. Like if you feel awful on something, you shouldn't be taking it unless it is like the only option for like immediate intervention for, you know, something that is like going to like kill you or permanently harm you like right then. Right. But I mean, there's this history of doctors not listening to people, specifically women, specifically women of color, Mm -hmm. you know, that for so long the medical system has not listened. Yeah. So I think, it's easier said than done, but let's start doing it, right? And I love that you're giving that resource out there. You know, someone out there wants to talk to you, maybe wants your advice. You know, you're willing to be that person that's an advocate. And that's all this stuff you're doing is life changing. Like I, I cannot give you medical advice, but I can give right. you yelling at people advice. Hell yes. <laughs> and getting and your way advice. And that's what we need sometimes. I wish we had a little mini voice in our heads that would push us to do that all the time, but it's so hard. So yeah. thank you for being that person for people. 
Of course. And like, you know, surround yourself with people who feel that way about you. Hell yeah. Honestly, yes. like, you know, if you're with someone who's like, oh, just stick it out, like, it'll be okay. Like, maybe that person's not the ideal bestie, or maybe they don't fully understand and they can't, you know, play that role in your life right now, even if they have the best of intentions. Sometimes you, you know, just need to adjust who you're surrounding yourself with or, you know, explain explain in more depth so people can really like get on the same page and and get it more than they do because not everyone has those same experiences so you know i if i'm talking about depression to someone who's never experienced a symptom of depression in their entire life they're gonna be like oh well you know you could just try like not being so sad and, oh, like, I i'll get on that like <laughs> I love that piece of advice, right? I have anxiety and people say, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad. You're like, oh, is it? <laughs> okay. Oh, you like, try, did you just try go for go for a walk or something? Oh, oh, just oh like, that just softens it? Just yeah, something no. nice that makes you happy. Whoa. Okay. Thank you for that <laughs> worthless piece of advice. Can I come How much do I owe you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jesus. Like, wow. Uh I think there's definitely this fear, though, that you start to take these medications and you're going to lose whatever sense of self you've had. But I mean, I think that points to the whole what you just talked about of we get adapted to whatever state of mind we're in and we think that this is it. And so it's definitely scary for someone who's never done this. You know, for me personally, I started taking them, what, a year ago? So my concept of self was all of that you know there's a lot of people I think that you know even later in their life are thinking about maybe you know this is the time I should start but then who am I and that's such a scary place to be I I mean I'm not a you know I can't say anything personally it's brought out more of me Mm -hmm. and I that's what I want to share to people I don't know if you have any like context of you know how it felt on and off meds and if one felt more like you or what that experience was like because I oh yeah I mean I felt like there was there were depths of myself that I didn't even have access to before yes that is a beautiful way to say it that this just unlocks us I think to like open the pages almost Mm -hmm. of our entire library but also it's important to acknowledge that you know we're never a finished product. You know, people change throughout their entire lives. Certainly. You know, you you change, your body chemistry changes, you may need to change meds, you may need to move to a different city or go to a different school or get a different job. Like there's a million different variables at any given time. And when you're young, that's especially true. I'm going to keep that one. I love that. It's opening up different layers of ourselves. That's really beautiful. Are you this I you're very outspoken here very you seem to be very strong in what you believe in are you like this everywhere do you freely share what you do with everybody or is this something that you kind of pick and choose who you disclose to much to the chagrin of everyone around me I'm like this all the time Hell, yes <laughs> bring all the identity this is authenticity yes <laughs> um I I'm a very private person in a lot of ways but as far as you know activism and advocacy are such a big part of who I am and who I have to be just because of, you know, the ways in which I identify. Like, I just, I can't, I can't not be an activist because it's just not an option when you are me. Um, But I mean, beyond that, like, I, I keep like some things to myself, but, you know, mental health advocacy is really important to me, you know, talking about trauma, talking about, racism and sexism and you know whorephobia and transphobia and all sorts of things like that that I faced like I talk about that shit all the time I Mm. I have to talk about it 
for, for my own survival, but it's also, you know, something that's important to me to help other people to stay safe and stay informed and be able to advocate for themselves and be able to take care of other people, you know, if they are in a, a more privileged position. So yeah, this is stuff that I'm always outspoken about. I'm not, I love that. I'm not shy about it. It's not something that I, I hide. Um, but then I'll be like weirdly like private about like, maybe I don't want to talk about what show I was watching on TV last <laughs> night. Like, I don't know. Yes. I just, I keep some things like personal and I'm like kind of quiet about some things, but mm-hmm. yeah, like the things that most people are quiet about are generally the things I'm the loudest about. And I mean, awesome. You are deciding what's worth you know, disclosing and what's worth not. Who the hell cares that sex is this shameful thing that we're supposed to not want to talk about? We're supposed to keep quiet. Like, if that's not what it is for you, then speak it. And I love that, right? I ask everyone on the show, what is one thing they want to normalize? I think this is a hard question because you've just, you know, spewed <laughs> left and right everything, so many things <laughs> that I think I could pick apart threads of to normalize. But it is one question that I ask everybody. If you know, there was one thing that you wanted to be, this is my hill to die on that needs to be normalized. What would it be? Hmm. I know that's take all the time you want. I'm over here just like relaxing from everything going on. (laughs) I would say giving a fuck, you know, Mm -hmm. empathizing. And, you know, that applies pretty broadly to yourself and to those around you. I think the balance of those two is so important because a lot of people are doing one and not the other. Mm. I mean, life is short. Yes. Well, it's been really lovely to have you on the show. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us. Is there any last messages or anything that you'd want to say to anyone who's listening? Yeah, I guess the last thing that I will sort of close with is just, you know, we're entering a new era right now. And there are a lot of horrible things going on. Um, and there are, there's also a lot of hope around a lot of things, you know, we're at the end ish, hopefully maybe kind of this, of this pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, we're working toward, you know, people getting vaccinated and hopefully people starting to get their lives back. But as we move forward, I hope that we can all learn some lessons in taking care of ourselves and one another. Um, and the accessibility that we've built around, you know, work and school and events and entertainment and, you know, everything, you name it. Mm. I hope that we can, you know, work to sustain some of those systems because they have helped people who were not able to access things since long before the pandemic even started. And I, I worry about people getting left behind as we go back. I don't want to say go back. There's no normal to go back to. Normal was the problem. Um, But, you know, as things open up, as we sort of shift to, a more a more everyday approach to life we need to make sure that we are not leaving people behind a mm. lot of people have been getting left behind in our in our society for a long time from you know lots of different marginalized intersections um you know i'm specifically speaking around like issues of like disability access but you know also like a lot of the things that are going on with racial issues right now especially for like black and indigenous people and other people of color mm-hmm. um we need to make sure that if if we're going to move forward, we have to take everyone with us because we will not survive if we don't start working as a unit. And that cannot be at the expense of the identities of people of color or the participation of people with disabilities. It can't be at the, 
the expense or the exclusion of anyone. It has to be all of us or none of us. And that way forward is not through the conformity of marginalized people. It's through the these sort of like ruling identities stepping back and not centering themselves anymore and making sure that we are giving mm-hmm. to everyone according to their need. And that's just, that's what's been my on my mind lately. I mean, a lot of things yes. have, obviously, but, you know, that's sort of the the main theme of it is that we need we need something different going forward we can't go back to the same old shit right and the people who are at the center how do they begin to even see that they are yeah Yeah. i don't i hit them with a book like i don't i'm trying to you know like i I want it's like i want to have action items right that kind of say do this do that do this but it's just yeah go to an anti-racism workshop there are a zillion of them happening right now okay where where would someone get that information if they want to do that um i think it's calling us in is the name of it i can put that in the uh episode information yeah all of these things don't always have pretty nice bows on top to say this is what you have to do and i think that that even that would be taken away from everything to make it so simple as do one two three and then you'll be good to go which is totally not the message either so Start having conversations, start talking to people, start learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like something that, you know, most people don't even realize is a problem. You know, most people right. with that privilege are like, what? It's like, what's the problem? Why are you making such a big deal out of it? It's like, it's not a big deal to you because you're the one benefiting from it. Right. So it's like if you are resistant to, you know, have me, you know, have the access to the same things as you like that shows me that you're not benefiting just from having those things but you are benefiting from my lack of access to those things yes exactly so think about that mm-hmm. and if you can say with confidence like with your chest that that is chill then i know exactly where you stand and i don't need to have any further conversation with you about it x out goodbye <laughs> right I told yes. you I'm cutting people out with a machete. Yes, which I think is <laughs> self-care, truly. Can we normalize that, cutting out people with a machete as our self-care? It's important. Mm-hmm. Protect yourself. Protect the energy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for all this information. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anywhere that you'd like to plug for social media, a website or anything? Yeah, um, I'm at Cruel Valentine all over the internet on every platform, uh, all social media, all pay platforms. And I am just cruelvalentine.com slash links has cruelvalentine.com is my website, but my links page just has links to everywhere else you can find me um, to, you know, do anything from send me a tip if you like what I do or to buy some pasties from me or to Mm -hmm. catch a future event that I'm a part of or to watch my porn, whatever it is that you're into, um, to book me, to email me about burlesque lessons or a session or a conversation, um, business consulting, anything. Um, That's sort of like the one-stop shop for me is cruelvalentine.com slash links. Love that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was really, really great. I really appreciate it. Good. I'm glad. Join us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Your Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show.